How are you, family? Are you doing well? Oh, some of you. It's like, sorry for the rest. I don't know what's going on. Should we try that again? Are you doing well? Okay, two more. Okay, I'm not going to flog a dead horse. We've got to move on here. So it's uh, good to be with you this evening. Um, first of all, this evening, we want to just, I want to just take this opportunity to thank all of you that were involved last weekend with our Easter celebration for the weekend Friday and Sunday services. I know there were people from this space that volunteered, and particularly I want to mention those that danced on the stage that were like, man, they were fantastic. They were so, it was, we have to have more of that. Hey, amen, come on. Yes, we have to have more of that. That was just so special to see them and enjoy that with them. So thank you so much to them. And um, then just also this, uh, I have a note here somewhere that I'm supposed to follow, and now I've lost it. Um, okay, I don't know. Oh, then we're starting with our uh, 120 series for the month of May. So you'll see all around our facilities, it's going up. It's a, it's a time where we, uh, for the last couple of years in Pretoria, have in Twane, we've come together as churches and we preach the same things for the month of May as we stand in unity with each other across different denominations and churches. And we want to speak one voice to our city as a sign of unity. And uh, we're also part of that. And you'll see that and, and be, enjoy that with us over this time. Now, uh, there's been a great stuff happening in our youth service, particularly on a Sunday morning, and, the, and there's just been a stirring among them and even creativity, new creativity that's been released. So from the youth team and the, the music team, they've written some new songs, and we've actually recorded those songs, and you can go onto our SoundCloud account and actually go and listen to the songs that they've recorded, and we want to support them and give them a what up and just stand with them in that. So just please enjoy that. It's always fun and it's always a great privilege to be here with you in, on a Sunday evening and to share with you. And uh, we as a church have really felt that over this time, these two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, we really want to prepare our hearts and, and, and prophetically stand and in the spirit stand for our nation as we're going into election time. So what I'll be sharing with you tonight is a little bit of trying to find some things that helps us as Christians in a time like this. How do we orientate ourselves according to God's will in this season that we are in? Now, many of you know that as a family, we, every year we go to a place down in the Garden Route in the Southern Cape, and we camp for about three weeks, and we have our holiday time. We love it. It's just a fantastic time. But it's in an area which is a national park, so it's wildlife. Um, we love it because we, where we camp, it's a forest behind us, natural indigenous forest with all the animals and stuff that lives in the forest. And then in front of us is the ocean. And uh, generally every night when I'm tanning my meat, you know, doing the good old braai thing, we've got dolphins hunting in front of us. We see whales. I've seen killer whales in the area. And, and it's just an amazing place. So let me stop talking about it now. Otherwise, I may just run out and pack the family up and let's go. But uh, one of the challenges of that area, because of the forests, natural forests and plantations that are in the area, there's often fires. You know the Nisner fires and those things. So last year, there was a fire in that area that, that uh, burnt a large portion of, of the area was burnt out. And uh, sometimes what this causes is the animals then flee for their lives. And so last year when we were camping... Uh, one of the things that happened is there were more snakes in the area than what we used to see. Now, we always see snakes there, but this time around, they were actually more in the spaces where people would go. They wouldn't normally come into the camping area, but there were more snakes in the area. And uh, in that area, there's um, nice and venomous snakes like boomslang. 
Uh, if you know a boomslang and puff adders, lots of puff adders in that area. So when we were walking in the forest, you've got to be attentive. You've got to be careful. And uh, one night, one of the, a, a girl in the campsite, she's about 22 years old. She's actually a friend of, of my son's. Uh, she went to the bathroom at about 10 o'clock on a Sunday evening. And she didn't have a torch with her, so she didn't really look where she was going. And uh, she actually stepped on a puff adder. And she was struck by the puff adder. And screamed and ran off to go look for her parents. Her pa- parents are also in the ministry. They're down in Bloemfontein, uh, church leaders. And uh, they didn't actually know what to do. How to handle the situation. Fortunately, there's park rangers. So they got hold of a park ranger 10 o'clock on a Sunday evening. Said, what do we do? They said, you've got to take her to uh, Plettenberg Bay. It's the closest uh, area where they can actually have, possibly have antivenom that they can give her. Now, I don't know if you know puff adders. They are... Probably they, they are the snake in Africa that is responsible for the most fatalities. Not because they're the most venomous snake, but because of the way they hunt. Do you know how a puff adder hunts? They've, they're very slow in their, in their movement, actually. They strike is one of the fastest, but they move very slowly. The way they hunt is they actually go lie in pathways. They're very well camouflaged, a beautiful snake. They're very well camouflaged, so when they lie in a pathway, you, you can easily step on them, and that's how they hunt. So they lie, you know, you've seen animals, they make pathways. So these snakes would lie in pathways and wait for animals to actually almost step on them. And then they strike and kill their prey. And are you okay, Malaika? Are you just okay? <laughs> it's like, ah! <laughs> Sorry, I'll, I'll move away from the snake now. <laughs> and um, so unfortunately, that is often where humans also walk in these pathways. So that night, that's what happened with her. The snake struck her. And, uh, and a puff adder has what is called cytotoxic venom. It's not nervous system venom. Most other snakes have nervous system venom. So when they strike you, you actually cauterize, you know, you, you sort of, you know, put a, what do you, they call it, a, tourniquet around that area where you're bitten around your leg to stop that venom from spreading but interesting this is a fun fact it may be useful in your life some point I pray you never need to have to use this but when a puff adder bites you you actually have to move so that the venom spreads through your system so that it doesn't pool up in one place because puff adder venom eats the flesh it destroys tissue where it lies so she was bitten by the snake parents jumped put her in the car to their horror, they discovered they had hardly any fuel in the car. So <laughs> my heart felt so for these parents. They raced off into the night to go and to the hospital. Had to find a garage on the way. The first one they got to was closed. They raced off. Dad says he probably made it with a couple of hundred meters with the fuel that he had. Had to put in fuel in the car, then got to play. They had one vial of antivenom at the hospital. Stuck it in a system sent an emergency call out by the next day. They had 11 vials from the area and they pumped it through a system and by God's grace and a miracle, she actually had very little tissue damage to her for the snake bite. They said it's actually the best recovery they've ever seen from anybody. So it all ends well, Malika. It's okay. Okay. (laughs) The moral of the story is when you walk around at night, carry a torch. Okay. (laughs) But the reason I'm telling you this gruesome story is, you know, in the scripture in Genesis, the enemy, Satan, is presented to us in the Garden of Eden as a snake. Now, we don't really know if he was actually a snake or what the story was, but the, 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 the picture it creates for us is this thing of a deceiver. Like a puff adder, he deceives, lies in places quietly waiting to deceive, to not let you see what's really going on. And the Satan's number one 
venom that he uses in this world is the deception. It's to lie. Half-truths to confuse us, to not let us see what's really going on, what's really there. And he goes around all the time, and he works in world history. He's working in our, in our world today to bring about confusion in people's lives so that when people are trying to live their lives, it becomes difficult to know what should I actually do? How should I actually live my life? What is actually right and what is actually wrong? Because there's a confusion that he creates. And that's why Jesus came. One of the things that Jesus came was to give us truth, to be a light that shines, to remove the confusion, to remove all the half-truths and the lies and the deception, and to show us truth. Because where truth is, we can live, and we can have good life. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about this evening, as we are in a time where we are having to make big decisions as a nation. We're having to make some important discernments as a nation. Whenever you come to a place where you have to cast your vote, I hope you don't just go like this into the voting booth, you know, close your eyes, any mini mini mo, and draw a cross, and whoever gets my cross, yay! Or you look at the picture, who looks the best, or which color do you like the most of the party, and then you just, hopefully you are looking, listening, doing some research, praying to see who do I pray for? Oh, who do I vote for? You pray for everybody. Who do I vote for? You pray for every party, but you can only give one your vote. And who are you going to vote for? Who am I going to get that cross to? And, and you really need, and I really need, when I have to vote, I really need to know truth to make it possible for me to decide. But that's the thing that's become so difficult. Because of the work and the craftiness of the enemy, there's so much confusion around nowadays. I don't know about you, but I find it so difficult often to really know what is really true. Who can I really believe? It seems like, you know, so many of our politicians are being caught out that they say one thing publicly, but they do something else completely different. That they're positioning and create a you know, public persona, but actually what they're really doing doesn't live up to that. How many of us have been disappointed? I think as a younger generation, it's so sad to hear, and I mentioned it earlier this evening as we were praying together, about how many of the born frees are actually thinking of leaving and are leaving the country at this point in time. Saying we're disillusioned. We have all this promise. We had all this hope of, of, of you know, having overthrown apartheid and having seen all of that you know, out of our nation. And we thought, now we're gonna, you know, it's going to be hard work, but we're going to get somewhere. And now many of them feel, I've got two degrees and I can't find a job. Many of them feel, I don't know what to do. And now these people for whom the battle was fought, I mean, the people that fought the battles against apartheid, knew that it, they weren't going to reap the benefits. It was for their children that they were doing it. And now many of these children are saying, I, I have no hope. What a sad situation. I know it's not everybody, but it's a significant enough amount of people that even the president said, young people, please don't leave our country. Don't leave. That's the difficulty, the confusion. What, do, what is trustworthy? What can I hold on to? What can I really believe? Where do I go? And having been in, in the UK recently, and you know with the whole thing of Brexit, talk about a nation in confusion. A nation where they say, we, we don't know what's going on. 
We don't know how we got here, and we don't know what we're going to do to get out of this. Just confusion. The 2016 word of the year in the Oxford Dictionary was the word post-truth. Have you ever heard that word, post-truth? Saying that we actually live in a society now where truth can no longer be qualified and can no longer be defined. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It can no longer be defined. We don't know what truth is anymore. Stephen Colbert from the Colbert Report, that comedian that does this political satire, he, he, he started using the word truthiness to describe what we would consider to be truth. Not something that's really true, but something that sounds truthful. And through things like fake news, we've begun to spread truthiness. And, we, and we, we have all these things that are happening and people that are talking about things and they try and make it look like it's true. But it's not really true. Now, you might be a more savvy generation. But I so often have to laugh, in particularly the WhatsApp groups or something that I'm involved with with older people, how often they share some news report and then you have to go, that's fake news. You see, because they didn't grow up in a cynical world where they couldn't trust the press. They trusted that if something was printed, they, they sort of believed, well, if it's printed, it's true. Now, you all are in probably in a different situation where you almost trust nothing that's printed anymore. Because you go, I don't know if this is true. How hard is that to live in a space like that? Where you say, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust anybody. I don't know if I can trust anything that comes out of anybody's mouth. And it's almost like if a person's a leader, you can't trust them. The further you stay away from them, the better. Because they're just playing the game. They're just saying what we want to hear so that they can get our support and our money and then they do with it whatever they want. And the cynicism has crept into our world. But when I read the Scripture, it's always so remarkable for me that the Scripture just brings me right back to a place where I realize this is not new. What we're experiencing in our time, this confusion, this uncertainty, it's been other times in the world where it's been the same. Very often, actually, if you read and study history. But one of the times we see it in Scripture, it actually happened exactly like we experience it today. And it was the time of Jesus, 2,000 years ago. And I want to read for you from Matthew 27 and apply some of just what Jesus experienced and what was going on in His day about truth. In Matthew 27, we have the story of where Jesus is taken before Pontius Pilate to be decided whether he was to be crucified or not. So Pontius Pilate, if you know the story of Pontius Pilate, he was a Roman governor that was put in charge of Jerusalem at the time with basically one job, and that was to keep the peace in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was always a very difficult part for the Roman Empire to look after because the Jewish people, because they believed they're God's nation, only God has authority over them, they saw it as their birthright to make anybody that tried to rule them's life difficult. So they would always have rebellions and insurrections and revolts and just do all sorts of things to make any occupying force's life really difficult. And so often, there would be these rebellions that would break up. And, it, and the problem is it started in Jerusalem. It would often spread to other places. So when Caesar appointed a governor for, for, for Palestine, he would normally choose a military guy, a guy that knew how to keep things and people in line and that could command the soldiers. And he gave him this job description. You keep the peace in Jerusalem. And so here's Pilate. All he wants is peace in Jerusalem. He cannot afford a riot. 
He cannot afford things to get out of hand. He just wants the peace of Jerusalem. But now he's in a difficult position. Because Jesus gets put before him. And he's told, you must make a decision. The Jewish leaders were fed up with Jesus. They were concerned with the way Jesus was leading and the support that Jesus was getting. And that he was going to lead people away from their authority and from their rule. So they developed this narrative. And they started saying, Jesus is saying that he's the king of the Jews. So they put Jesus before Pontius Pilate and they said, you need to deal with this guy because he's telling people he's the king of the Jews. Now that word king of the Jews for us may not mean so much, but in that day that was a political statement. That was like a political party's rally cry. That was Jesus. They were saying, Jesus is saying that he's going to overthrow your rule. He's going to take Jerusalem away from you. He's going to break the Roman Empire and he's actually going to be the ruler of the, of the Jews. So he's a rebel. He's an insurrectionist. You need to deal with him. Jesus says he's the king of the Jews. So they bring Jesus before Pilate and they say, Pilate, you ought to deal with this man. You see, because the Jewish leaders didn't have the authority to have him executed, to finally deal with this problem. They didn't have it. So they broke all their rules and they decided the Romans are going to do it for us. So we pick up the story on that Friday morning when Jesus is now brought to Pontius Pilate. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, verse 11. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He just asked him this one question. He says, please tell me. This charge is brought against you that you're telling people you're the king of the Jews. Will you tell me, do you think you are the king of the Jews? You see, because by then Pilate has started doing his homework. He started looking into Jesus. And he couldn't find evidence of this crime that Jesus was now say, said to have committed, accused of. He was finding that there's something going on here, but this is not true. Jesus is not going around and saying that in that political term. He's not starting a political party or a movement. He's not doing this. I can't find evidence of this. So he says to Jesus, are you doing this or are you not? In another, sec in another gospel, he's saying, can you tell me what is the truth? What's true? I need to make a decision here. Just give me the truth, then I can make the decision. But Jesus, as fantastic as he is, answers him with this, you have said so. Not yes or no. How many of you have ever prayed and asked God for yes or no? And then he gives you some other answer. Like, Lord, what are you saying? Are you saying yes or are you saying no? Then he gives you an answer and you go, Lord, I don't know what you're saying. Is it yes or is it no? Because why does Jesus do this? Now, I don't think Jesus came to earth to make politicians' lives easy. He came to challenge them. But what Jesus is saying, he's saying, you've got to decide. I'm not going to tell you. You've got to decide. Because ultimately, it's going to be as you say. You're the governor. You're the guy with the authority. doesn't matter what I say. It matters what you say. Jesus says, I've come. I've lived among you. I've shown you the Father. You've got to choose what you're going to do with me. And isn't that the same for every one of us still today? You've got to decide who's Jesus to you. Is he just nobody that you can ignore? Is he just a good guy whose teachings you can read and help to inform your life? Or is he your Savior and your Lord? It's as you say. He can't tell you who he is in your life. You've got to decide. So he says to Pilate, you, you decide. So Pilate goes, thanks. That doesn't help me at all. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. 
Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. He was used to people coming before him and being accused of things. And those guys would always shout, no, I'm innocent. And try and, and yet Jesus just, just quiet. Just quiet. Just stands there. Now this was prophesied in uh, Isaiah 53 verse 7. Josh quoted it, so, uh, read it for us so beautifully on last Sunday. Where it was said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus just stands there, allows all these lies and accusations to be brought against him, and he just stands there quietly. Doesn't help whatsoever, just stands there. So now Pilate has a problem. He has to make a decision. He has to do something. On the one hand, he's got a man that is seemingly innocent of these charges brought against him. On the other hand, he's got a, a, a crowd that is starting to get noisier and noisier. A riot is starting to, to swell up there in the courts. He knows he's got to do something. If he lets this crowd get out of hand, that's the end of his political career. That He'll be posted out to Siberia somewhere and, and have like a little station where there's two soldiers and him. No internet, you know, no Netflix, nothing. Just him, you know, like the worst thing. End of his political career. So he has to deal with this crowd. He has to, but now he's got an innocent man. So how does he deal with this situation and do the right thing? So he has a bright idea. He says, I'm not going to make a decision. I'm going to let them make the decision. I'm going to let them find out what's the truth. And they're going to do the thing that needs to be done. I'm not going to do it. So he throws it back at them hoping that they will choose truth. Now, let me, before I carry on, just say this. God is so amazing that He created this earth for us to live on and to have relationship with Him. This earth doesn't work without God to its highest level. But God, in His wisdom, and because He gave us free will, He knew that we were going to... to rebel against him and sin. And we're going to try and live this world without him. So he built certain things into this world to give us at least some chance of life that's livable. Not perfect, not great, but at least livable. And that which he put into this world is that he made it possible for us to find truth, some level of truth, not complete truth, not all truth, but some level of truth, even if we don't know him. Romans says this for us. Romans 1 verse 18, 19, and 20 says the following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The scripture literally says that if throughout the history of the world, if people just look without bias, without you know, some preconceived thing that they're searching for, if they really just look, they will see God in what has been created. Because his fingerprints are all over it. The problem is people 
don't want to see God. Therefore, they don't see. And, but God in His grace still put those things there. So truth, for instance, can be found in this world. Not perfect truth, not complete truth, not the ultimate truth, but you can find your way towards truth, even if you don't know God. Because truth is established on what I want to call three legs. It's like a three-legged stool, a little chair that's got three legs. You've got truth, and it rests on three legs. And so what Pontius Pilate does, I don't think he knew he was doing this, but this is what we see from the Scripture, is he goes to every one of these three legs to try and bring these people to truth. So these three legs are the things that the crowd kicked over and said, we're not interested in this. And the three things he had to choose or not choose in this situation. Now the first thing that truth rests on is what I want to call reason. Reason. God created us as human beings with the ability to reason, to think, to understand, to know that if you do something here, it leads to these consequences. And if people just apply reason, they often get a good way down the path to discovering what truth is. You'll not get there all the way because our minds aren't complete. Our minds have also fallen. Our minds are broken. But we still have the ability to recognize through reason that which is right and which is good. So Pilate says, I'm going to put a reasonable choice before these people. So in verse 15, it says, Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed over Jesus to him. So he says, Ha! I'm going to trick them. I'm not going to give them a choice of somebody to release from prison. But I'm going to make the choice a ridiculous choice. That no person in their right mind would not choose the right person. So he says, on the one hand, I'm going to put Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the one who fed the thousands. Jesus the one who healed the sick, who, was raised, from the, who raised people from the dead. Jesus the one that cared for people, that loved people, that encouraged and strengthened. This great guy who, in whom Pilate could find no fault. He says, I'm going to put this guy on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm going to get my worst criminal from the prison. The guy that nobody in their right mind would choose to have set free, Jesus Barabbas. Now, Jesus Barabbas, if you read some of the other scriptures that talk about him, he is referred to as a terrorist, an insurrectionist, a thief, a murderer, because he was part of a group of people. They were in the time Josephus referred, the historian, referred to them as the Sakari. And what they did, for instance, is they had these little sharp-bladed knives, these like um, uh, daggers. Thank you very much. I need lots of help this evening. It's my third time preaching today, so my mind is like starting to wind down. My airtime's almost up. So, so he's got this. They had these little daggers. And whenever there was a festival or a crowd gathering, they would look for leaders, Jewish or Roman leaders, and then they would go and assassinate them. They would just stab the person in a public space and kill them right there and then disappear to the crowd. And so they were generally hated and the people didn't have time for them. So this guy's in prison and the scripture says he was in prison for a murder that he committed. It's possible even 
I read this in some of the commentators, that the two guys that were next to Jesus on the cross were part of his group of people. But he was now awaiting trial, found guilty of these terrible crimes, broke every Jewish law that there was. The Jews in their right mind had every reason, if they were reasonable people, to let this guy be crucified. Do you see the two options? It's like, you know, I put before you watered-down, cheap ice cream. And on the other hand, Haagen-Dazs, Belgium chocolate. Come on. Who in their right mind will choose the cheap, watered-down, ice cream-tasting, flavored, vanilla-flavored stuff? Nobody. So this is what he does. He puts this obvious, ridiculous choice before them. But guess what the crowd does? Who did they choose? Who did they choose to be set free that day? The criminal. Not the amazing guy who healed their sick and fed them. The criminal. Why? Why does a crowd do something so stupid? Scripture tells us. It says in verse 18, For he, Pilate, knew it was out of self-interest that they'd hand over Jesus to him. They didn't hand Jesus to him to be, to be put on trial because Jesus actually did something wrong. They put Jesus on trial because Jesus irritated them. Because they didn't like what Jesus was saying. They didn't like what Jesus was standing for. So they said, we've got to get rid of this guy. It doesn't matter if he did anything right or wrong. we just got to deal with him. Self-interest. Do you know how powerful self-interest is? Self-interest is, I just want what I want. I don't really care what it does for anybody else. If somebody's in my way to get what I want, I'm going to take them out because I want what I want. And I earn and I deserve what I want. This is what the crowd had. And, and so often we see this. Leaders can become really good at reading the interests of the crowd and then speaking to those interests and whipping up a crowd self-interest. We see it a lot in our politics today. Through gender politics, politics of race, politics of economics. What leaders do is they divide us into different groups. And they say, you are a so-and-so. And this is what you need. This is your interest. And I represent your interest. And I'm going to speak into your interest. And I'm going to help you let your interest come. It doesn't matter what your interest does to anybody else. You deserve what you want. And so they, do, and they, they whip, never intending to actually do anything about it, but just as a way, great way to get support. The problem is we, they polarize us, push us into different groups, and separate us so that we can speak to our interests. Self-interest gets us as people to do the most unreasonable things. Lust is a form of self-interest. When, when we don't check our interests, our self-interest, in terms of our uh, expression of our sexuality, and we move into lust, for instance, it's self-interest on steroids. Self-interest where I say, I don't care what it does to anybody else, but I have a need, and that need's going to be met. I don't care how it affects another person or another group of people. I don't care what it does. I don't care if it's right or wrong. All I care about is I want it's my interest. I don't care if it's true or not true. It's what I want. Greed is a powerful form of self-interest. I want what I want. I don't care 
what it does to anybody else, but I want. I don't care if I didn't work for it. I don't care if, I, if I've not, you know, done the, the hard yards. If it's just or righteous for me to have it, I want it. And I'll find a reason why I should have it. And it's greed that leads to corruption. When we've seen what corruption does to a nation. We're all feeling it at the moment. And it's self-interest. Self-interest works against reason. So I encourage you, if you're looking for truth in this time, whether it's when you're coming to the ballot box to vote, or whether it's whatever you're doing in life, be careful of your own self-interest. Take a step back and say, do I want this because it's the right thing or because it's what I want? And what I think is the right thing. You see, as Christians, we don't represent any one person's interest other than Jesus' interests. It's good that we look after the interests of those whose interests have been forgotten. But we must always remember that God is interested in everybody. And He wants everybody. Rich, poor, black, white, male, female. Everybody. God wants everybody's interests to be taken care of. He doesn't divide us. He doesn't separate us. He doesn't manipulate us according to our interests. He loves us. And so as Christians, that's what we have to do. If we represent God, we look for the truth. And sometimes that means I choose things which is not the best for me, but it's the best for everybody. It may not serve my needs, but it's what's right. But this crowd wasn't interested in that. So they kicked over reason. They said, we don't care if this is reasonable or not. We want it. The second leg that truth stands on is conscience. Conscience. When God created us, He gave us the ability to have a conscience, an inner voice. Now, our conscience is not perfect. Our conscience, we can't trust it in every way, but we have a conscience. And we're better off listening to it. We as Christians believe the best conscience is a conscience informed by the Word of God, shaped by the truth of God's Word. But we all have a conscience, an inner voice that speaks to us, that sometimes just stops us in our tracks and says, listen, what you're doing is not right. And it brings you back to think about what I'm about to do. So here there's a moment of conscience. It's Thursday night. Pilate's with Mrs. Pilate. And they're at home. And they, I know I'm going over time. I'm going to try and wrap this up quickly. They're they, they spending time together and just having a meal, you know, watching a bit of TV. And as they're sitting there in their lounge, he gets a phone call. One of the guys from the, from the office says, listen, we've got a problem. There's this guy. They want you to judge him. He's been called that he says he's starting an interaction, insurrection, that he wants to be the king of the Jews. You're going to have to deal with this early tomorrow morning. Sorry, I know you had other plans, but you're going to have to do this. So he says, okay. So he goes back to Mrs. Pilate. She's sitting there drinking a little bit of wine, watching TV. And he says to us, listen, dear, I know we had plans for breakfast tomorrow, but I've got to cancel. I've got to go early to the office. There's this problem. He tells her the story about this guy and Jesus, and, and he can't find guilt in him. He doesn't think that he's guilty, but he doesn't know what he's going to do because the crowd and the, the Jews and you know the whole story. And so they go to bed. So they sleep. Early morning, he wakes up. He lets her lie in, kisses her on the forehead, and he goes off to work. She's sleeping. So they don't have time to talk. He gets to the office. All hell breaks loose. It's just people and crucify him and you know, stuff going on. 
And uh, so now he's got to sit here and deal with this. So he gives his phone to his assistant. He says, listen, you just, you know, answer my phone. Everybody phones, I can't speak now, I'm busy. Phone rings, assistant standing there. And the caller ID says, honey. I don't know what that is in Latin or, but it's honey. And the assistant goes, it's the wife. She wants to speak to him. What do I do now? He says he's busy. He can't speak on the phone, but this is his wife. The last time I forgot to tell him to buy milk on the way home, he almost killed me. What do I do? What do I do? Okay, finally he says, okay, I'm going to, he runs in. He gives him the phone. He says, it's your wife. It's wife, honey. He says, okay, listen, everybody, just stop your shouting and your hollering. Stop trying to kill somebody. I've just got to speak to my wife. Just hang on. So he goes, yes, honey, I'm busy. His phone's, you know, really, lots of people. they bloodthirsty. What do you want? He's nice. What do you want, my dear? <laughs> yes, honey. He, he knows, you know. So she says, I had a dream. I was tortured in my dream all night. This guy's innocent. You cannot do this. How many of you have had your conscience speak to you through a dream? Her conscience is speaking to her. She tells her husband. Now he's like, well, yes. Now, not only have I got the crowd and Jesus, I've got my wife mixed up in this also. I can only lose this thing. And he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So, conscience. God speaks and points towards truth through our conscience. But this crowd wasn't interested in that. So Pilate's got a problem. The third leg truth stands on is what I want to call law, natural law. When truth, when conscience and reason comes together, it forms law. Law is that which we as a society hold things that we say, these things we have to keep. And we even formalize them. Whether it's a body corporate of a townhouse complex, whether it's a government, whether it's a school, we all make rules and laws. And a lot of the time, these things aren't based on the Scripture. We believe the best law is based on the Scripture. But even without the Scripture, people can make some good laws. One of the laws that we have, sort of all over the world, it's mostly held in all societies, is that you're innocent till proven guilty. It's just a, so you find it quite common. You're innocent and proven guilty. So Pilate appeals to the law. He says, they, they don't, there's no reason in this group of people. They've got no conscience. Perhaps the law will speak to them. So he says this to them. Um, in verse 22, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? That's a legal question. He's saying to them, present the case to me. What have you found this man? What evidence can you put before me that I will have to judge him guilty? Because do you understand that what you're asking of me to do with this man is very serious? They weren't asking them to just, you know, give Jesus a slap on the wrist and tell him to stop his nonsense. Send him to his room. They weren't asking him to just, you know, put Jesus in prison for a couple of days so that he would get over his, himself and, you know, stop causing problems. They were asking him to torture Jesus. Crucifixion was designed by the Romans as a deterrent against anybody that would rise up against the Romans so that it would contain the most horrible form of death that they could imagine of the time. The most pain to be extracted from a person's body was done by the torture before the time, the beatings with the whip. The, the, you know, by the time that Jesus got to even pick up the cross, he was already a broken person in terms of his body. Not his bones, but his flesh was broken. It was embarrassing. 
It slated your whole family, your whole town. If your town, your village had somebody from that town that was crucified, they were all in bad reputation. It was terrible on every level. He's saying to them, if you want me to do this to this guy, you have to present me with enough evidence. You have to give me a reason that we can all sleep at night to know we've done something so horrible to a person. What must I do with him? What has he done that deserves this terrible a punishment? What does the crowd do? Do they say, listen, let us remind you, Pilate, of the eyewitness testimony of so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so that spoke and told us exactly. Can we take you to the phone recordings of the conversations we had? Can we show you the photos? Can we show you the material? Can we give you the, the evidence and lay it out before you to show that this man, we need to kill him because he's going to destroy our society? No, they didn't do that. What did they do? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder crucify him. No evidence, no reason, just shouted louder. Do you know that it happens all the time in our day now? Not in settings like this, but through social media. The people that want to force their will on others don't hardly ever bother with good reason anymore. They just shout louder. They just bully. They just manipulate half-truths. They just shout louder. Sometimes Christians do this, and it saddens me when I see Christians do this. Shout louder. Just try and overpower the other person. So the crowd does this. You know the story. Ultimately, Pilate says, well, there's no way for me that I'm going to get out of this. I don't know how to handle this situation. I don't know what to do with an innocent man. But I also don't know what to do with the crowd. I'm not prepared to end my political career because of this. So he figures out a way that he's going to deal with this. He says to the crowd, well, you said what you want. I don't agree with you, so I'm going to wash my hands from this. I'm stepping out of this. You do what you want to do with this man. How many of you know that's not a leader? That's not the leaders we need. In our nation, that's not what we need in our leaders. That just says, well, you do what you want. I know it's not the right thing, but go ahead. If that's what you want to do, how many of you know it's really great when we have leaders that stand up and say, listen, guys, stop the lorry now. Let's talk together. That are prepared to work hard to bring opposing views together. That are prepared to do the thing to say, I don't care if it's not popular, but it's the right thing, guys, and we've got to find a way to do this, to stand for what is right. This man has been innocent. He's not been proven guilty. We cannot, as a society, do this. But this guy just says, I want to wash my hands. It's got nothing to do with him. And then the crowd gives this response. They say, we'll take responsibility for it. And they say this. It's all right. Don't you worry. You kill him. His blood will be on us. What a statement. What a careless statement. What a careless statement to make. Imagine if Stephen tonight, if all of you decided he's a terrible person. You just, he irritates the living daylights out of you. Now, I know he's a fantastic guy. That's why I'm using him as an example. It's never a possibility. <laughs> but the way he speaks, I mean, the shoes he wears. It's just ridiculous, man. This guy, we will all be better off if we just get rid of him. And you all come and tell me, listen, you've got to kill Stephen. I say, I can't do that. Just because he shoes his, you know, shoes, I can't do that. But then I see you want it. So I say, okay, well, you kill him if you want to. 
Hey, what a terrible thing. And they say, His blood is on us. We'll take responsibility. Now that's the whole point why Jesus kept quiet up until that point. Because aren't you thankful today that His blood is on you? His blood is on us. The reason He didn't speak up in this trial, didn't refute their ridiculous charges, didn't refute their ridiculous proceedings, is the whole point was that He would be crucified and that His blood would come on us. Truth was crucified that day so that you and I can be restored into right relationship with God. He said, and then they said, even worse, they said, let His blood be on us and our children. Wow. Can you think as a, if you were a parent to say that, to put that curse on your children, as guilty as we are of killing this man, our children are included in this. Now, the propheticness of that statement is that Jesus didn't just die for that generation, but for every generation to come. And let, we, let us thank Jesus that we are the children on whose blood Jesus is. But the terrible thing on the other side of it is, so often when we don't seek the truth, when we kick out reason, conscience, and law, it's not us that pay the price, it's the children that pay the price. It's the next generation, the weak, that pay the price. So as I come to a close, thank you for your patience this evening. These are uncertain times, but we have a certain God. Our lives are built not on the shifting sands, but on the rock. The rock of ages. This that we're experiencing in our day, the confusion that you may be feeling, how difficult it may be for you to make a decision, it's nothing new. Jesus experienced it, and yet he was able to do God's will through it. All I ask of us, and I think the Scripture does not, what I ask is not important. What I think the Scripture asks of us is this, that we seek God's will. That we be prepared to say, Lord, I want truth, and I'm going to stand for truth. Not truth as some... You know, because we know as Christians, truth is not a doctrine, it's not a teaching, it's not a book. What is truth? Truth is a person. Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. For me, truth is only to be found in relationship with Jesus. And Jesus died. Truth that day was crucified. And God allowed it. Because for us as Christians, when we stand for truth, we're not standing for a teaching or a doctrine or a belief system. We're standing for Jesus. That's saying, I want to have relationship with all people. I want all people to come into my kingdom. So when we present truth, and we must, we never compromise on truth, but we do it in a way that presents Jesus to people and draws people into relationship with Him. So as you are in these days, and all of us, as we are considering, praying for our nation, considering our vote, let's do it in a way that says, we are con I'm convinced of this is the truth, therefore I'm voting for this and this party, and every one of us. Isn't it fantastic that you have the freedom to choose whoever you want to vote for, and let no person, no preacher, no politician, nobody tell you who to vote for. It's your decision. We fought hard for that choice. When you go into that ballot box, there's nobody with you but you. It's your decision. And let nobody change 
take that away from you. You decide according to your conviction and what you have felt to be the truth. But you have the responsibility of seeking what you believe to be true and doing the homework. And then saying, Lord, this is my conviction. And when you've cast that vote, you say, Lord, I'm doing this not just for me, but for us. It's us, Lord. It's for your body. It's for your people. It's for this nation. And let us hold together one people before God. One people. So if you're having discussions and arguments with your friends, do it in a way that shares your conviction, but not separate yourself from them. Keep them coming closer. Keep drawing people in. And remember that Jesus is our supreme allegiance more than anything else. I don't want everybody to be so certain about my political party, but they're not quite certain if I'm really a follower of Jesus Christ. I'd rather them be confused about my political allegiance and be very sure that I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your patience. Won't you stand with me and I'm going to pray with you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word pulls no punches. That your word speaks truth. That cuts through. But yet it does it in such a way that reveals to us the love of God. And that draws us closer. That brings us in. Doesn't reject us and push us away. And I pray for us as your church in this time. I pray, Lord, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will be the salt and the, of, the, of the earth and the light of the world. That we would be a people that will stand for your truth, that will speak truth, that will share with conviction, but at the same time be a people that listen, that hear, that understand, that draw in, that move beyond our own self-interests, Lord. Let us not defend me and mine at the cost of anybody else, Lord. I pray that the church of the Lord Jesus will be a church that's, that sees the bigger picture, a church that stands and holds every person in this nation before you that wants to see your kingdom come. And I pray that about each one of us, Lord. Tomorrow when we go, when you send us out into the world from this place, as we go, that we would be, that I would be the salt and the light wherever I go. That I would share a Jesus with people that didn't come to correct us and teach us, but came to die for us so that we can know him. Help us, Lord. We pray for our nation. Let reason, conscience, and law not be sacrificed in our nation. We pray for leaders, Lord, that can do the right thing, that can be leaders with conscience and reason, and that respect your law. We trust you, Lord, not because we deserve it, but because you've given us the right to ask you. We ask boldly today in Jesus' name. If you're here this evening and you'd like somebody to pray with you, it may even be that you've never given an opportunity for the Lord Jesus in your life to be your Lord and your Savior. As we end the service now, you're welcome. Come to the front. Let us pray with you. If you want to need prayer for anything else, perhaps you need healing. We want to pray for you. Trust God for healing. If you just need comfort, you just need somebody to just spend a moment with you. Come, let's, let's, it'll be our privilege to do that with you. And then there's uh, in the... Uh, my words are, my airtime's now finished. It's like, uh, 
the functions hall where Stephen didn't tell you where it is. It's out that door down there. <laughs> it's, there'll be some time to spend with people and just get to know one another. We love you so much. It's so great to be part of you and to have you as part of our community. May the Lord bless you in this week. Amen.